0: Over the weekend, a new report was released about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were killed. This report is the most comprehensive to date about what happened on that day in May. Along with the report was a surveillance video that shows what happened over the course of more than an hour. In the video, you see the gunman saunter into Robb Elementary School, carrying an AR-15 almost casually. He enters the school, totally undeterred, and then he walks into a classroom. Parts of this video were leaked last week by the Austin American Statesman and KVUE, a local TV station. In that version, they included the sound of gunshots, but then it cuts to silence. There's an editor's note that says the sound of children screaming has been removed. Then you see the law enforcement officers enter the hallway. Some of them are decked out in gear with firearms and ballistic shields. They look ready for action. But the video shows that for more than an hour, they seem to just be waiting. At one point, one officer stops to use the hand sanitizer dispenser. He rubs his hands together and walks back to his original position. And as you're watching this video, seeing these officers in this hallway, there's a part of you that hopes that someone will do something sooner, that things will turn out differently, even though we know what happens. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 18th. Today, what we can learn from this new report about what happened in Uvalde, Texas. Our correspondent Arlise Hernandez spoke with our executive producer, Maggie Penman. Okay, here they are.
1: So what was this new report on the school shooting in Uvalde that came out on Sunday? This report was the first sort
2: of exhaustive telling account that we have of what happened on May 24th at Rahm Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. It was undertaken by two lawmakers and a former Texas Supreme Court justice who were called upon by the Texas Speaker of the House to investigate, you know, what happened with police in particular and what that response looked like. If you recall, 19 children died in that mass shooting and two teachers About 17 other families were impacted Whether you know, their children shot or, or teachers that were also injured in that. So this report was, I think, an attempt to sort of clear the air and put forth facts because for weeks the families of Uvalde have had to deal with back and forth narrative, competing narratives from the state, from local officials. And the committee members, led by Representative Dustin Burroughs of Lubbock, uh, a Republican, wanted to make sure that the families had at least a base set of facts from which to draw upon.
3: If there's only one thing that I can tell you is there were multiple systemic failures. I would invite everybody to read the entire report. You cannot cherry pick one sentence and use it to say everything without reading it all together and with context. But if we need a simple phrase to describe what the report says, again, I would tell you multiple systemic failures.
1: And there was a lot of false information coming from law enforcement in the weeks after the shooting. Can you just talk a little bit about what some of those narratives were that that came out?
2: Yeah, early on, there was just complete and utter confusion as to what was happening at the school. If you were to look on the the Facebook page of the school district, it said lockdown, but it gave no information for hours. We didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden around 2, 3 p.m., 14 people, then 19 people, then 21 people were shot. And so it was sort of this slow roll of information as well as the false information about sort of the heroic actions of law enforcement on that day and confronting the gunman. There was no confrontation outside of the school that we have evidence for at this point. And there were details like that, that they sort of initially lauded police and and law enforcement that showed up to the scene that turned out not to be true.
1: So what did we learn in this report that's new? I know you've been covering the shooting and the aftermath for weeks. So what, what have we learned that's new here? There have been weeks of media
2: leaks, and so we've gotten pieces of the information f- that emanate from this report. But I think probably the newest information is just about how unprepared Robb Elementary School really was for an attack like this, given you know some of the efforts that have been made at the state and some of the big deals that they've made about the money that they've given for school safety. And this school was utterly unprepared. Their alert system didn't work. Raid Police radios didn't work in the hallways. The the doors were kept unlocked pretty often routinely by teachers and administrators were aware. And then I think reading specifically the accounts of how many law enforcement officers were out there, 376 from various federal, state and local law enforcement, seeing that number and understanding and knowing what happened was, I think, difficult to reconcile Uh, For a lot of people, I think hearing Pete Arredondo's, the school's police chief's words and his reasons for why he assessed the situation the way he did. He instead of looking at it as an active shooter, he, you know, saw it as a barricaded subject and hearing him talking about the why he didn't take command of that particular situation was pretty damning.
1: It was interesting to see also that This wasn't just an indictment of Pete Arradondo. It wasn't just an indictment of the school police or the local police. It was really every level. There were failures. And just hearing you say, you know, nearly 400 law enforcement officers were there on the scene. It's just staggering that that so many officers were there and no one took action for over an hour. That's right.
2: That's right. I mean, we had been hearing the, the 77 minutes, the 77 minutes in which law enforcement did not confront the gunman. And for weeks we had heard, you know, from state police, well, it's Pete Arredondo's fault. You know, he was the incident commander and he was the one who was supposed to take control.
3: Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there were sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children.
2: Something else that's new about this report is that he wrote the active shooter protocol for the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District and had assigned himself as the incident commander. And yet when he was there, had said, oh, no, I was just one other responding officer among many and that you know because he couldn't see the shooter because he wasn't in a position to communicate effectively about what was going on inside that classroom that you know he wasn't in command and and that he he wasn't the one to to take charge in that particular situation because of sort of the accumulation of all those circumstances but that doesn't negate the fact that in the protocol that he wrote he would be the guy calling the shots. He just didn't hear. And yes, the blame is spread around. The state wanted to blame Arredondo, the city, wanted to, you know, sort of say, hey, DPS, state troopers, you all have responsibility here. This report says everyone messed up. No one took the initiative to save lives in, in this particular situation. There were a couple of officers that tried to sort of buck the trend, but it seems as though collectively as a force they did nothing to stop the carnage
0: Coming up we'll talk more about the breakdown in communication between law enforcement agencies We'll be right back
1: So this report comes less than a week after the Austin American Statesman released a video of what law enforcement officers were doing while this shooter was still in the classroom with children. There has been a lot of outrage about seeing these officers milling around. Um, One of them at one point goes and gets hand sanitizer from a dispenser on the wall And they're decked out in military-style gear, and yet they hesitate. Is there anything new that we learn in this report about why they hesitated?
2: I think what the report illustrates is the way that law enforcement were analyzing the situation, that they thought they had time, that they had the shooter contained, if you will, in a classroom what was striking i think from a reader's point of view of that report is how little was mentioned that there were people there were children inside that you know contained area along with the gunmen i think it's clear that there was a total lack of analysis of what was actually going on and a lack of information that was being communicated between the various agencies, either because radios didn't work, either because a line of, you know, command and communication wasn't available. There was requests for special kinds of equipment. I believe the first couple of ballistic shields that came in weren't actually rifle ballistic shields, meaning that they could have been shattered by the kinds of rounds that the gunman was using. So... Yes, on the video, it looks like they're milling about. There was activity. There were requests for certain things to come in and out. And we're obscured from where, for example, Pete Arredondo was further down the hallway. But yeah, it, it definitely looks like police were were waiting to do something and were talking about doing something. And that didn't materialize until about, you know, the, the BORDAC team, the Border Patrol tactical team, and a couple other law enforcement agents, you know, went in a stack formation and and took out the gunman.
1: And as more and more law enforcement from different agencies arrived on the scene, what should have happened? Should someone have stepped in? And if so, who and how would this have played out in the best case scenario?
2: So the report doesn't go into who should have taken responsibility, but we do have previous reports, uh, including one from Texas State University researchers where they train on active shooter protocols, a higher ranking or better equipped, better trained, uh, maybe Texas Department of Public Safety official or Uvalde police should have taken command, should have, you know, look for another way into the classroom that wasn't, you know, through the front door because they had been shot at by the gunman and those bullets did go through the sheetrock. So, you know, that wasn't a secure position for them. But then there were windows on the other side of the classroom. There were, you know, other possibilities. I think that the classrooms were adjoining. There was a door in between the two classrooms. You know, there was this obsession early on with, you know, the doors and finding a master key and whatnot. And and no one tried the doors to see if they were unlocked or, or not. At least that's what we understand right now in terms of the information that we've gotten. And, you know, that's something that an incident commander who was outside, who had working communication away from the scene could have communicated to someone, you know, to those officers that are on the inside. That just didn't happen. Not an officer on the outside, not an officer on the inside. I think at one point you did have a Texas Department of Public Safety special agent come in and, and sort of, you know, say aloud or wonder aloud, if there are kids are there, in there, we, we've we got to go in. And yet that was not met with any kind of response except for, you know, whoever's in command would figure it out, except No one seemed to be in command.
1: Looking at the video footage, I think one of the things a lot of people were struck by is just the amount of gear that these officers had and how almost militarized they were. Um, I wonder, is that typical in this part of Texas or, or what's behind some of the gear that we see these officers holding?
2: Yeah, this this is South Texas. It's a highly militarized uh, region of the state of the country because of it's proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border. There is a lot of activity, whether it's human smuggling, trafficking, drug runs, that type of thing. And so uh, often local law enforcement are called upon to support state and federal law enforcement, in this case, U.S. Border Patrol. Uh, or Homeland Security investigations with those types of situations. And so you've seen funding for law enforcement agencies along the border, you know, increase significantly. On top of the fact that, you know, Texas law enforcement agencies occupy a, a lot of space and priority when it comes to legislative budgets or local budgets. I think in Uvalde, the Uvalde police and their SWAT team is make up 40 percent of the city budget. Uh, These are local law enforcement agencies that had a significant amount of gear to be able to intervene in different kinds of situations. It's, It's unclear to me, at least, you know, why that did not translate into a more effective response.
1: I wonder if there has already been any discussion at the state level or the local level about how law enforcement needs to change in response to this report um, and whether there are things that they could do differently in the future. I think that remains
2: to be seen. Some of the early public hearings that took place in the Texas Senate focused primarily on school safety measures, on mental health resources and and those types of issues that lawmakers in the past because this is not new to Texas have, you know, tried to tackle through funding and through, you know, moving resources around in the state. But the question of of law enforcement and their response, and guns in particular, have been notably absent from sort of the public discourse uh, led by the legislature.
1: The question of guns is a really interesting one here because I think a lot of people in the aftermath of this shooting were really struck by how even with this incredible delay in law enforcement response. So many of the victims were shot and likely killed in the first few minutes, even before law enforcement arrived on the scene. So I wonder if any of the families you've talked to or any of the local or state officials have have brought up the idea of, you know, the fact that an 18-year-old was able to access this incredibly high-powered weapon.
2: Oh that's the number one grievance of these families. I was at a rally maybe a week Almost ago. It.
0: It. For Miranda! For Miranda! For Eliana! For, Eliana. for, Eliana. for, LED. for LED.
2: LED. And that was the number one demand that they raise the purchasing age for, you know, these types of weapons that uh, unleash so much suffering and and destroy little bodies as they did in this, you know, tragedy. Some of those families went to D.C. with the signing of the, some of the gun control measures that were passed and were there with the Biden administration, but they want more. And Texas is a place that, after each one of these types of mass shootings, including school shootings, they've gone the opposite direction. They've loosened gun restrictions. And that's something that right now is so unfathomable for these families. And one of those people was Vicente Salazar, grandfather to Leila Salazar, who who was killed that day.
3: The gun control that they passed, they just passed that enough to keep everybody shut. Sorry, that doesn't work for us. Not here in Uvalde. It has to be more because an 18-year-old can still get a gun and that's not allowed. If you cannot smoke or drink till you're 21, you shouldn't be allowed to have a weapon of that kind of... Mass destruction. I'm sorry, it's just not there. It's not right.
2: On the question of you know how many of these children were killed and teachers, excuse me, were killed in these early minutes, you, you, for every one of those deaths, you have a child that survived and is going to have to live with not just their injuries, their physical injuries, but their mental and emotional injuries. There's still a ten-year-old in the hospital. Maya Zamora, shot five times in the torso and is learning to to walk again it's a miracle that she's alive and you know the question for some of these families is is if this 18-year-old did not have a weapon like this could he have would this have been as deadly as it was
1: it also strikes me because this conversation around guns and law enforcement tends to be so partisan This was a bipartisan effort by the Texas House of Representatives. Does it seem like there is some bipartisan pulling together happening in Texas at the state level to hold law enforcement accountable, to make changes to prevent this from happening again? I think it's difficult to say yet. I think we'll see the legislature meets
2: again in January. Uh, they, They meet every other year. And I imagine that with sort of the fury of Representative Burroughs, that was sort of, you could tell, was seething um, in his presentation yesterday, that there will be at least some
3: effort. I'm a policymaker. My colleagues up here are policymakers or have strong opinions about changes to policy that need to be done. Today is not the day that we're going to share what our strong feelings and convictions are about that. That was not the task of finding the facts. After some period of time, we will put our policymaker hats back on and share those opinions with the committee and others about what we think needs to change and what's done. But right now, we're going to let the report speak for itself and focus on the facts that were found in there.
2: The governor has said that he was angry about being misled, about what the law enforcement response looked like. Maybe there's room there, but you know, there have been massacres like this in the past, in particular really awful ones in Texas, and and that has not happened. So if the past is any indicator of what will happen in the future, then no, right? There won't be movement.
1: How have the families of victims responded? to this report and also to the video that's come out. It's rage
2: upon grief, particularly in Uvalde. uh the Casares family whose uh, young daughter Jacqueline Casares was killed in this massacre has been one of the most outspoken in all of this and and they basically said, you know, just complete another disappointment. I if there's a stronger word I can't I can't find it right now, but just disappointment with the people who they thought were there to help protect their children—it's one of these things that they're—you're loath to find someone who will completely, you know, back up law enforcement's performance here to the families of, particularly those who were dying still, who had been shot maybe once and might have survived, and who might have bled out, which we don't know yet because we don't have the autopsies. It's a particularly searing moment for them. I, I spoke to a parent who, when the video came out, she pulled all her kids. She's um, the mother of the surviving child, Mia Cerrillo, who smeared herself with blood and pretended she was dead. He, she put them all in the car and they went for a drive to try and avoid the coverage. And yesterday with the report coming out, you know, there are families who were just bracing themselves because every detail of this has just been so um, heartbreaking. And every time there's an effort to sort of stitch those emotional wounds up, uh, they just get ripped out again.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Arlise. Thank you. Arlise Hernandez is the Texas correspondent for The Post. Maggie Penman is our executive producer. Investigations are continuing, Both the county's district attorney and the FBI are also looking into what happened in Uvalde that day. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Renny Svarnovsky. It was edited by Lexi Diao. Special thanks to Joyce Lee, our visual forensics reporter who analyzed the video released by lawmakers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.